0: from St. Louis Public Radio. This is St. Louis on the Air. The genetic diversity of the plant, of the trees that are on these Christmas tree lots is pretty low. And so genetic diversity is important because it allows these plants to adapt when there's new pests and diseases and droughts and different climates, you know, climate change. We actually took those seeds out of the cold storage and put them in the x-ray machine and we can see inside the seeds. Many of the seeds were either empty or partially full or were infested with insects.
1: I'm Sarah Fenske. You may have heard rumors of a Christmas tree shortage this year. Wayne Harmon is the owner of Star Pines Christmas Tree Farm in Boonville, Missouri, and he says that shortage is not necessarily
2: the case. I would call it a tight supply, and that's because you can find Christmas trees. You just have to look a little more if you can't find it at your normal location.
1: Wayne Harmon says the tight supply is due to more people wanting real Christmas trees this year. Plus, he says fewer trees were planted 10 years ago. That said, there is a growing problem related to Christmas trees. It has to do with the Fraser fir. Wayne Harmon has farmed firs in Missouri for 36 years. He says the Fraser has become incredibly popular with customers.
2: It kind of became the Cadillac of Christmas trees here maybe 10, 15 years ago when it it came onto the scene in high production numbers. And they were able to ship it, you know, from up north and from the the, uh, east coast to here. Uh, It grows more in a, a cooler environment and up at elevation in some of the mountains. And it holds its needles well, and it has a nice soft needle texture, and it's a beautiful tree.
1: Wayne Harmon has tried to grow the faz- Fraser fir in Missouri. He said the tree has a tough time surviving our summer humidity.
2: Survival is maybe 1 to 5 percent, which is not acceptable for production. However, the canaan, it's almost the exact opposite. That's, you know, you'd have a 95 percent uh, survivability.
1: And Harmon is leading a research committee for the Missouri Christmas Tree Association. They plan to test different trees to find something that looks similar to the Fraser fir, but grows well locally. And even so, Wayne Harmon says not to give up on that Fraser fir.
2: The tell of the tale of the Fraser is not done yet. <laughs> you know, there's, there's a lot of effort being put into saving the Fraser.
1: And that is Wayne Harmon, a Christmas tree farmer in Boonville, Missouri. Now, the saving that he's talking about there involves much bigger complications than the Missouri humidity. The real culprit is an invasive, sap-sucking insect. The Missouri Botanical Garden says the Fraser is now endangered in the wild due to this insect. Saving it has become a focus in recent years. And joining us now with more on the garden's efforts is Becky Sucker. She is Senior Manager of Living Collections for the Missouri Botanical Garden. Garden. Becky, welcome.
0: Hi, thank you. Thanks for having me. So Becky, tell us a
1: little bit about this sap-sucking insect who's wreaking havoc on Fraser firs. Where does this insect come from?
0: Well, it actually came from Europe and it was introduced to the U.S. about 100 years ago. And um, because the species is not native here, the Fraser fir wasn't able to evolve any type of defense against it. And so a lot, a large proportion of our furs were wiped out. So what
1: kind of damage does this uh, insect cause?
0: Um, It basically, uh, the tree is not able to transport um, nutrients anywhere anymore. And so um, it eventually will just um, die.
1: So (laughs) so the insect kind of gets in the way of its normal uh, arteries? Yes, yes. So the Botanical Garden says 90% of the mature fir trees in Great Smoky Mountains National Park have been killed off in the last 50 years. Is the impact of this insect as big in in some of the other growing areas?
0: Um, Well, that's basically where the tree is from. It's native to the southern Appalachian Mountains, and so that a very large area of its native range was affected. Um, There are a a uh, population um, in western um, in West Virginia that um, actually was able to survive relatively well, and so that's the area that we focused our effort, our collecting seed collecting efforts um, in 2019. So we see these
1: Fraser Furs everywhere. Are they still able to grow in in farming conditions
0: then? Sure, sure. Um, we're able to grow them in in farming conditions. Yes, there are pests and diseases that um, farmers still have to look out for. Um, but it's really we really do want to make sure we conserve those native forests and the and na- the genetic diversity that those native forests hold.
1: I imagine this would have repercussions for those ecosystems if this tree is no longer able to grow in those places.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, um, it it really leads to a completely different ecosystem makeup which results in other plant and animal species declining and potentially going extinct
1: so is the hope that you could replant these trees and get them growing back in this area that they're native to
0: yeah, um, hopefully that—that's the goal. Um, I think what we're doing, uh, as far with with the seed collecting, is one small piece of that puzzle. So um, we are doing what's called ex situ conservation. So that's just one strategy. Uh, amongst a lot of plant conservation strategies where we bring the species out of its natural habitat. habitat. So XC2 versus NC2, which is when you conserve a plant in its native habitat. So seed banking, is a type of xC2 conservation where we can collect seed from these seed, from these trees in the wild and preserve that genetic diversity in our seed banks. And so
1: you went and gathered your team, I should say, gathered 17,000 Fraser fir seeds in 2019. Where are those seeds today?
0: Um, they are in our seed bank. So our seed bank is currently out at Shaw Nature Reserve in Gray Summit, Missouri. Um, we're actually in the process of um, building a new seed, seed bank here closer to the garden. Um, but yeah, they are in seed storage, which um, is basically coal in freezers um, out at Shaw Nature Reserve.
1: So does freezing potentially have an impact on those seeds?
0: Um, yes. So freezing is a, uh, is a good way to preserve genetic materials, preserve seeds for a longer period of time because it basically slows down the metabolic processes in the seeds but there's a whole process associated to storing those seeds because if you just take a seed out of the wild and throw it in the freezer there's a lot of moisture content in that seed and freezing it will create ice crystals that will damage the inside of the seeds so we have to bring that seed back to the seed bank we have to clean it we have to dry it down to 15 percent Um, moisture content before we can put it into the freezers. So that has been determined to be the best um, moisture content that um, doesn't cause damage to the seed, but also it leaves enough moisture content so that the seed doesn't die.
1: So this is some really precise work your team is doing on this
0: yeah yeah. it's there's a lot more that goes into it than you can imagine. but yes. um, and this is just one species out of thousands of species that we uh, hope to seed bank.
1: Hmm. So of these seventeen thousand that you have and you very carefully frozen them, you know, getting this getting the the conditions just right, do you have any sense of how many of those would be viable for replanting?
0: Um, that is a great question. Um, we We have a better idea of that now previously we did not we collected all of those seeds and we dried them down and stored all of them but excitingly in the past year or so we received a we applied for and received a grant to make improvements to our seed bank and one of those improvements was the addition of an x-ray machine Mm -hmm. and so now we actually took the those seeds out of the seeds out of the cold storage and put them in the x-ray machine and we can see inside the seeds Um, so that's the good news the bad news is that we found that there was not a great viability, um, that many of the seeds were either empty or partially full or were infested with insects. And so um, uh, I guess after that, we then followed up with viability tests, which is the process of germinating a small number of those in the lab. And it was found that they did have low viability. Mm. Um, However... We did collect thousands of seeds, and so we still have a decent number of seeds stored in the seed bank, which are potentially viable. So you
1: mentioned some of these seeds are infested with with insects. Is this a different type of insect than has been such a plague in in the Great Smoky Mountains?
0: Yeah, there are all kinds of insects out there, and um, there's actually several native insects that feed on the Fraser fir. And so, um, yes. Uh, we did find some of these potential insects. We haven't positively ID'd them yet, but um, we did see... Um, they're very, very tiny at that point, <laughs> So, but we could see that there was insect damage in those seeds. And that is somewhat natural and to be expected.
1: Okay, Th- that's no shocking development there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm curious about this x-ray. Um, it, it seems like you're x-raying something that is so tiny. I assume this isn't just like a normal x-ray that they'd have at a doctor's
0: office. It actually isn't that different other than, um, I mean, it's not built for seed banks, but it is a self-contained system. So hmm. it's, a, it's a little box that's, I don't know, about three feet by three feet. And so you can put the seeds in there in a Petri dish and you close the door so um, there's no x-rays getting out of the machine. And so you can, um, and then you can turn it on and you can see the x-rayed images on the screen. It's pretty cool. So <laughs> it does
1: sound pretty cool. What a great tool. It must have been just a disappointing moment uh, when you guys realized, hey, a whole bunch of these seeds aren't going to work for us. Uh, what was that like there in the lab?
0: Yeah, it was. It was. Um, especially because when our staff were there actually collecting the seed, they really thought it was a, the best possible time. Because another you know, uh, trick about seed collecting is you have to get there at the right time. You have to be there when the seed's ready. <laughs> And it's you know ripe, mm-hmm. um, and it and all signs pointed to the seed being ripe. It was coming out of the cones. Um, it was naturally dispersing, and so when we did see those images, it was a little disconcerting. However, any. Um, seed banking isn't a one-time effort. We have to go back. We continually go back because even in a freezer, seeds are going to lose viability over time. And so we we need to go back and continue to um, monitor those viabilities. So we'll take out seeds periodically out of the freezer and test the viability after several years and and be able to measure how quickly it's losing viability. And then we can plan additional collections to maintain those... um, those species in the seed bank.
1: So this is really such a data-driven process. And I understand a big part of your job is recording data on this kind of plant material. What kind of information do you record and and how does that play into the efforts to conserve these Fraser firs?
0: Yeah, you know, um, it's interesting because you say there's lots, of, this isn't the only species like this, but there's a lot of these out there being grown in and in, in on Christmas tree lots. So it would seem like they're not necessarily endangered, but... Um, we don't really know where those plants came from, and there's no documentation that tells us that. So what's really, really important for botanical gardens when we're bringing plants into the collection is to record as much information as possible. We want wild source plants whenever possible. And then when we're out in the field, we have really high quality GPS units, and we record the locate the latitude and the longitude, but also things like the soil type and the exposure and the sun and this, Um, moisture content, what are the other types of, what are the other species that are growing around it? Um, This is all really helpful information for any number of purposes, but it helps us understand, get an idea of populations, where they're located, how we might be able to grow it in cultivation, um, all sorts of things that really, Allow it, our collections to have the highest value possible.
1: And so, Christmas trees that are being grown on farms, and you know, there's a great demand for these trees. So, there's plenty of farmers happy to grow these things. Those might be genetically different than what you're finding um, in the true wild. That that's part of what's important.
0: Yeah, and I would guess, which is, and I can't say this for sure, but that the diversity, the genetic diversity of the plant, of the trees that are on these Christmas tree lots is pretty low, meaning there is probably very similar. And so genetic diversity is important because it allows these plants to adapt when there's new pests and diseases and droughts and different climates, you know, climate change. Um, And so when you don't have a lot of different genes and different types of you know kinds of trees that have different traits um, a disease could wipe them out very easily so it's really important to maintain as much genetic diversity Within and among populations as possible, if that makes sense. If that does
1: make sense. And something else I find myself wondering we heard from that Christmas tree farmer who explained just how hard it was for them to get the Fraser fir to take off here. Is this somewhat of a difficult project for the botanical garden in that you're also dealing with the misery humidity, even though you have, you know, you're putting so much more work into making the conditions just right, but ultimately that's a factor you could come up against.
0: Right. And I would say, Growing the plant to um, long-term is not the primary goal. Um, Growing the plant, uh, growing any plant, and a lot of the plants we grow here have never been grown in cultivation before. So we're learning every step of the way and we record everything we do. We record the soil type. What's the different mix of soil, of different types of soil that we're using, how much moisture, if we're using heat um, to help the seeds germinate. um, All of those things are recorded and we can, see our successes and failures along the way because we record that as well. Um, so part of it is just learning how to grow it. Um, we know that this plant is not gonna like the heat and humidity of St. Louis, and that's okay. We can still learn a lot by growing it. And we hope to share, <laughs> and it's not gonna thrive here. Um, we can keep it alive to some extent, but it's not gonna look like the Christmas tree that's in your living room right now. Um, but we can we can keep it alive and be able to tell the story. Um, to people and use that plant so they can see and and maybe that's a a learning uh an educational moment and it's in and of itself
1: an educational moment and also sounds like you guys are (laughs) playing the long game you're not just trying to get a a christmas tree that'll be ready 10 years time (laughs) right (laughs) well this has been such interesting work uh becky suker i want to thank you so much for joining us today and sharing about these efforts
0: thank you thank you so much for having me
1: This episode was produced by Kayla Drake with audio engineering by Aaron Doerr and production assistance from Jane Mather-Glass. It was mixed and edited by Jane. Our executive producer is Alex Hoyer. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio. Understanding starts here.